Welcome to TopCast. TopCast is the This Old Pinball podcast. For all things related to pinball, our emphasis is on interviewing pinball personalities, particularly those that work in the coin-operated game industry. To find TopCast on the Internet, just point your browser to pinrepair.com slash TopCast, and you will find all of our shows, which are available in podcast format for download. Our podcasts are also available through Apple's iTunes if you're using an iPod-type MP3 device. Tonight on TopCast, we'll be talking with Pat Lawler of Williams, Bally, and Stern. So now, part three of our extended interview with Pat Lawler. Gophers came out at the very end in 1997. So 1998, now Williams is, you know, Williams slot machines are, are you know, and, and, oh, yeah, and I forgot to ask you this. You must have known about the, the safe cracker slot machine that Williams made, the Dotmation's uh, safe cracker slot. I mean, what did you think about that? Right. <laughs> uh, well, I didn't think anything about it. Um, the, you know, when we did our games, uh, you know, they had the right to take them and turn, you know, and do whatever they wanted to do with them. And, um, at least in, you know, at least internally. Um, the whole turning the company into the, into the gaming company is just an amazing, they managed to snatch victory from the jaws of disaster. Um, and, you know, we could do a small part about that somewhere in here, but, but, uh, you know, they, they had, you know, they had gone and they had split up some of the talent upstairs. They had taken the, some of the programming people and turned them into programmers for slot machines. Uh, Larry was in charge of, you know, uh, engineering for, for doing the slot machines. Um, you know, he, he saw, you know, a great chance to do something different. Um, the rest of, you know, the rest of us, uh, were, you know, were sort of left doing, you know, doing pinball and coincidentally at the same time, the guys who went off to form Midway, um, had, um, I, I want to put this timeline together correctly for your listeners because it's, it's really important to understand some of what was going on at this time internally. Um, Neil LeCastro had decided to start the gaming company. They had a problem where IGT had a patent on their slot machines, which is called the Telness patent. And that was the patent for virtual slot machine reels. Um, Neil Nicastro took the tact that for his gaming company to be successful, he needed to defeat the Telness patent. And so he filed suit against IGT claiming that the patent was invalid. Um, they basically lost the court case. When they, as part of this whole time frame of what was going on, Midway was formed as a separate company. And most of the, most of the assets of Williams 
were sucked out of the company and taken with Midway as a separate company. Um, along with a really great stock deal. <laughs> uh, and so what was left was laughingly internally referred to as the shell. And they had left the gaming company and the pinball company for dead. They had, they had basically said, there's not much left here. We're going to leave you guys to your own devices. You've lost, we've lost the patent, uh, the patent fight, and pinball's in a huge decline. So Midway was, was taken and formed with most of the, 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 the big assets of what Williams had been. And two things happened. The first thing that happened was we were, we cooked up Pinball 2000. And that was an attempt to show management that Pinball was still viable. And at the same time, Larry and his band of programmers for gaming, Larry came in one day and said, I've got a way of getting around the Telnus patent by playing these little games up above the, um, up, up above the slot machine. Remember the trail games? Right, right. So he said, I got a way that you could play these games on the Dotmation screen above the spinning reels. So. Which doesn't violate the Telnus patent. Right. And, even better, he remember that we had set up all those. Remember that we had set up all those lines of communication with the people from Monopoly. Mm-hmm. They went to Monopoly and they said we'd like to do Monopoly slot machines. Right, right. And from the depths of disaster came victory for the slot machine group, and that was due to Larry. And uh, on the pinball side of it, we ended up heading off. Gomez and I ended up doing the prototype for Pinball 2000 and making that happen. Looking back on it, Larry, even though he saved the gaming company, he kind of threw the last nail in the coffin to pinball because, you know, Nicastro now... You know, like you said, with the Monopoly, Monopoly slot machines were unbelievably successful. Larry did exactly what he was supposed to do. Right. And he used, he used his, his, he used his incredible talent to, 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 to turn a company into something doable. And at the same time, he was working with the pinball people. He was coming in and saying, this whole pin 2000 thing is unbelievable. I mean, Larry was working 80 hours a week. He was working 120 hours a week on both of these things. And, you know, the, the whole P, PIN 2000 thing to have been brought to fruition in a year uh, and, and to turn out the way it was is just an awesome talent, you know, of everyone involved, of, 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 everybody, of everybody who was involved in it. And and in my eyes, until I'm until I see differently, it was the last. I didn't say last great, but it was the last attempt anybody has made to change the 
the death spiral of pinball. Right. Right. No, no, I agree with you. We probably should get off the slot machine anything anyways because most people don't really want to hear about it. But I, I find it really interesting, you know, that, you know, pinball was basically financing slot machines all those years and then when, you know, they got Monopoly, when they got Larry's, you know, bonus games on the Dotmation screens that, you know, they, they basically cast pinball aside and it was like, okay, you know, they, they basically threaten you guys. Come up with something that is going to sell pinball machines or we're closing you. And then you guys did and they still closed you. Yeah. Well, you have to understand they did the right thing. They were a, they, at that point they had become a real gaming company. And so they had stock analysts who were coming to them saying, uh, we really want to value your stock as a gaming company, but we, we can't do that because it's got this weird pinball thing attached to it, and we don't know how to value the stock. And so if you want, to, if you want your stock to be valued the way it's supposed to be correctly, you need to get rid of this pinball thing. Now, in the original plan, big plan, remember that big plan, you know, big thing when they spun off Midway? The original plan was they were going to reacquire pinball at a later date into Midway and leave the gaming company alone. And what happened was, just like is happening with us now, revenue started to drop in arcade video and there was no way they could justify spending the money picking up the pinball company and dragging it back into that company and so they had one of two choices they could either they could either sell the company sell the pinball division outright or they could write the pinball division down for what it was right downable for, which was $12 million, which meant that they had to sell the pinball division for $12 million in order for it to be the right move. And nobody in their right mind was willing to pay $12 million for a pinball group. And that was how the, the company died. Seems so cheap today, $12 million, you know. Oh, that, that's astronomical. Nobody would pay that for a pinball company. Yeah. Nobody would pay that for a pinball company today. Nobody would nobody would pay two million dollars for a pinball company today. Right. How do you justify tying up that kind of capital on a return on investment on a product that makes as little as pinball does? And so, you know, pinball started to digress back where it came from, which was being run by family businesses. And, you know, that's where it is today. It's run by a family-owned business. Well, right before we get to that, the development of Pinball 2000. I mean, you and you and Gomez saw the ideas that were being kicked around, and and obviously didn't like them. I mean, what did you see that really, you know, was it the the idea of baby Pac-Man type models that just you know gave you nightmares? Um, yes. George and I, George worked for Bally when I worked for Dave Nutting back at the beginning of this talk. And, and 
they hit at the at, in the the first sort of collapse of pinball in the early '80s when gaming was really cranking. They were desperate to sell pinball machines, and one of the things they did was they did these things called video pinball machines, which were baby pack pin and granny and the gators. And uh, there was a game called Caveman, which there was a patent involved with Caveman by Gottlieb. And um, uh, operators have a long memory. They have a really long memory, and so do distributors. And if we had gone out in the world and stuck a TV monitor on top of a pinball machine, the first words out of their mouth would have been, baby pack pin. And we knew we couldn't do that. We knew that that was, that, that for sure, if we took that tact, we'd be dead. Both of us had been around in the early days of video games. And in the early days of coin-operated video games, in order to try and give you a much more rich 3D effect, they did a lot of this uh, half-silvered mirror trick where you could get things to appear to be have more depth than what was there. And so we both knew that the half-silvered mirror trick had been used. And in fact, in the game that I had done for Bally, which was the, which was 10-pin deluxe, which was the, the video shuffle alley. Right. The original video shuffle alley used a half-silvered mirror to fool you into believing that the pins were sitting on the play field that you threw the puck at. So both of us were more than familiar with using half-silvered mirrors to present images in space. Okay, we had done we had done that 20 years before. And so we headed off to my garage. George, there are many ways, I need to say this, there are many ways to do the P2K trick. Okay, George elegantly came up with one of the ways to do that that was just marvelous. It just worked perfectly. Um, he built a small working model, shined some light through it, showed that it would work, and we headed off and built a working model of, a, of, a, of that version of P2K. Uh, I've never said this publicly before. There are other ways to do the P2K trick that don't violate the patent. Okay. There are other ways to do that. Um, but the one we chose to do was the one that we ended up showing to the people there at, at Williams at the time. Do you think that the other ways would be something, that, you know, a direction that another company could do, you know, Stern or whatever? Uh that is an interesting question that would have to be, you know, it would have to be demonstrated. Well, not to get too far ahead of ourselves. Um, so when Revenge for Mars came out, how did you feel about the outcome? It was awesome. Revenge for Mars is a testament to a dedicated group of people who were trying to build something that was groundbreaking and they succeeded and and for that to be the first product on a new platform you know to 
to, to put all of everything that's in that game, to manufacture all of everything that's in that game, do it in one year along with building the game is a stunning accomplishment. It's a testament to all of those people that participated in that, that they were able to do that. It's cool. I mean, I, the revenge, I mean, I've got one. It's it's killer game. Um... The, the Remember, the goal here was to get new customers to play pinball machines. You know, uh, and, and you know, I, I love listening to people who say, oh, that's not a pinball machine. Well, my, my response is, I'm, I'm sure when they put flippers on the first game, somebody said, that's not a pinball machine. And when, you know, when electromechanicals went to, to, you know, uh, to solid state, somebody walked up and went, that's not a pinball machine. And when somebody put a dot matrix on a game, there were people going, that's not a pinball machine, it's got video on it. Um, and so I laughed because, you know, when they put the game out on test, there were clearly kids who were used to playing video games who walked up to that game and were blown away. And they were stuffing money into it going, this is really fun. This is really cool. And they did what they set out to do. They, everybody set out to build a game that would bring new customers in, attract people who hadn't played pinball, and show them that we could, we could, you know, take technology and make it work to our advantage. And, uh, that, that product is a stunning achievement. Now, when Nicastro basically shut the door on the whole project and on, on the pinball division, I mean, what was your, were you in like denial or how did, you know, how did that whole thing transpire in your mind? No. When they, when they killed us, um, I've already said this publicly, for me personally, it was as if a giant weight had been lifted off my shoulders. Not because I didn't want the company to succeed, but because every day going to work there, we were being told that nothing we did was good enough. I mean, that group was being beat on a regular basis, day in and day out, day in and day out. You guys aren't good enough. You guys aren't making us any money. You guys aren't doing as well as the as the slot machine guys. How come you guys used to make us a lot of money and you don't make us any money anymore? And we had gone from being the guys who had, you know, we're, you already said this, we were the guys who funded all of those other groups originally. And we went to being people that you, you know, you wouldn't even give the time of day to in, you know, in the, in the halls of the company. Oh, look, it's a pinball guy. Why don't we kick him out on the street? Um, and that's just the way, you know, that's just the way, you know, those kind of businesses are. Um, you know, one day you're the cool thing and the next day you're not a cool thing at all. And, but it, but it was very wearing. It was very, very, very hard to want to get up every day and go try and, you know, oh, you know, the, the internal joke was, are we going to save the company again today? <laughs> um, and it, it just got to be very wearing. Did you feel that, uh, Wizard Blocks, your pinball 2000 game, I mean, how, how revolution, I know you, you kind of were taking a different approach in that you weren't concentrating so heavily 
on the the on the video per se, but I mean, did, did you think your game was pretty going to be pretty groundbreaking? I think all of P2K was groundbreaking, and I and you you know you have to understand that pinball pinball in its current form has has been around now for uh, eighty years, ninety years, something like that, and uh, and P2K was you know was around for a year. And we were sitting there and we were trying to, we were trying to learn the tricks and the traps to turn it into something, you know, uh, you know, outrageous. And, um, you know, there, there were, there were different things we needed to do. We needed to, you know, you needed to try and, and come up with, a, in my eyes, you needed to come up with a slightly better balance between the pinball and the video. You needed to make sure that you know that that you kept the the illusion of the hologram there by not letting the video go all the way out to the edges of the screen, which is you know what what happened a lot in uh, in Star Wars. Um, you know, and if you kept the illusion alive, if you kept you know something as simple as a little character, uh, I'll give you a perfect example in Revenge from Mars. At the end, there's a uh, there's a saucer that's moving back and forth on the bottom of the screen, and you're trying to hit it with the pinball and blow it up. And that's just outrageously fun. I mean, it, you know, it's just outrageously fun trying to hit that illusion of a of an object, you know, with a pinball machine, with a pinball. And uh, and so I was trying to, with Wizard Block, strike a different balance between the video and the pinball. Uh, probably a little more pinball, a little less video. Uh, and you know, try to use the video to a to a more you know custom kind of uh, cause. Uh, but you know, it, it it we just never were you know we never got to the end. The the big problem that I saw with Pinball Two Thousand was the the development cost. Now your your team's basically doubled in size. I, I would just think the development cost would make you know Twilight Zone look like you know it was. Made on the cheap. I mean, how, how did you feel about that? This is just me saying this. I don't think we needed to. I think we needed to have the presentation as cool as it was in both of the first games, but I don't think you needed to have as much stuff as you had in the first two games. In video, I'm talking about. Um, it was so different and so unique that we didn't need to. We didn't need to do it all at once in the first game. We didn't need to have 15 modes of video. We needed to have some. We needed to have the saucer going back and forth, and you blowing it up. And we need that was an. You know, there were a few things in there that would have been enough to, you know, to to drive the new the new platform. In in my mind, and there will be people who will disagree with me, and that's fine. I I don't you know I don't have a problem with that. Um, and so what I'm alluding to is that I don't think that we really needed the quite the level of manpower that we ended up with doing each game. When Williams closed and Stern became the only kid on the block, and like you said, they they were not, you know, a uh, you know they weren't a publicly traded firm. That you know they were basically you know. Gary Stern's baby. Um, 
and they approached you or you approached them i mean how was this initial this initial mend uh uh gary called me and uh, you know they they wanted to know if i'd be interested in you know in working on pinball and we had a meeting and um and they uh they 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 had decided that they could get their hands on the, the Monopoly license. And I had wanted to do Monopoly on Safecracker, and so I thought that would be really cool. And, um, and we, we, you know, we, we struck a deal to, you know, to, uh, to, to go off and do that. You know, we're, we're not going to get too much into this. But it's really a different kind of. Uh, it's really a different environment. It's the two companies are completely different, not just because one was a big company and it had a lot of money. Just uh, I tell people a joke, and the joke goes like this: Both of us come from Planet Pin- Pinball, but we're different tribes, and we don't speak the same dialect, and. Lots of times what we do is we hold our hands up and wave to get points across to each other that neither one of the tribes quite understands the other one. And that's, that's sort of my analogy between Williams and Stern. And I'll just, you know, I'll leave it at that. They're both very, you know, they're very well-meaning people. It's just that we sometimes have a hard time communicating between, <laughs> between the people that came from Williams and the people at Stern. Now, you know, so you went from this Pinball 2000 hardware level that's just, you know, your, your, you know, dreams come true to stepping back almost, you know, five, six, seven, eight years in, in hardware, you know, hardware architecture. You know, you're back to a sixth story that goes with that. I'll tell it to you. Uh, Dwight Sullivan, who is one of my, one of my good friends, I, I really, really like Dwight. Dwight is a terribly creative person. Um, he, he said it like this. He said, one day, when I was, you know, starting to work on Monopoly, he said, and Dwight, you have to understand, Dwight is a big Star Trek fan. Dwight said, we've all just come from the holodeck of the Enterprise D, and we're all back on the original Enterprise, you know, in 1966. <laughs> and that was how he put it. You know, it, 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 if you know anything about Star Trek, you'll laugh when you hear that. Because we all came from, you know, you know the, the, the much more high-tech version of Star Trek to the, to the original one with Kirk and Spock. And, you know, that, that's just a hilarious analogy. You know, you said a couple years ago at Expo that you didn't think pinball was going to make it five more years. Um, you know, we've gotten... Put that in the context of what was said then. What I said was, if we were talking about how do you take... The, the specific talk was about uh, the rules of the game and the complexity of the game. And I was talking at that point about... Uh, there were different tacks you could take to try and keep the game alive. And what I said was, if you, if you 
purposely take the game and you tailor it just to the collectors, only to the people who collect games, then I think the handwriting is on the wall that you simply won't be around in five years. And I stand by that statement. Um, now, that's a different argument than saying pinball will be dead in five years. Uh, in my mind, there's two or three tacks that you can take to try and keep the game alive. Uh, and the question is, does anybody left have the wherewithal to, to do any of this? Um, the first tack you could take, which is the, is the one I just described, just tailor your product to collectors. Admit that there's no longer a street market for your product and sell as many games as you possibly can to people who put them in their basement. That's one tax you can take, and that will keep you in business for a little while. Second tax you can take is you can try and revive one way or the other uh, getting the product back out on the street and getting it to earn money again. What does that take? Well, the first thing you have to be cognizant of is that the product is a return on investment device. Um, you know, at, at Marvin's place, you don't just put games in there that make 50 cents a week unless they're, of course, you know, a wild cult, you know, a wild game that it, that's part of the museum piece. Okay, you know, the, the, the games have to, you know, in other words, if you're an operator, the game has to make money. Marvin's place is a little different, but, but the idea being that the games have to make money for people to want to operate them. Um, and so somehow you need to attract the P2K thing. You need to attract new customers to the game. Now, does that, you, there's two ways you can do that. The first way is you could take the tack that says I'm going to I'm going to make the game like the game was made in 1980 so that people can understand it and hopefully they'll come back to wanting to play a pinball machine. I don't agree with that. I don't think that's I don't think that's the only thing you have to do in order to attract new customers to the product. I think what you have to do is you have to be willing to take a risk. And that risk is you have to, you have to have some, some miniature version of P2K or, or sm some small video thing that's, that's in the game. It doesn't have to be a whole screen. It can be one little area that's got a trap door with a crazy character waving at you that you're trying to kill with the ball. But uh, entertainment moves on. People who, people who sit there every day with their cell phone now capable of playing every game they want to play on it, it's their, their GPS device, it's their link to the world, it's their are not going to want to go back to playing old technology. They want, to, they want to see something new. They want to see something that's just enough different that says there's some technology in this game, it's interesting, 
I want to play this game. Um, we're past the point where you can just keep stuffing toys in games and expecting people to think that they're they're cool. There's too much technology on a daily basis that people have in their hands that leads them to think that what what a standard pinball machine is is lame. Um, and if you want to get new customers, you're going to have to try and do something slightly different. And I think that's I think that's where pinball needs to go if it's going to survive in being something other than a museum piece, something other than a few people are collecting because they remember its heyday. You have to take a chance. You're going to have to try and do something. And it doesn't have to be Pin 2000. There are easier ways. Remember what I said about easier ways to do that? There are easier ways in a smaller sense to accomplish that end and still give people the impression that what you're doing is higher tech. Are you doing anything to develop these things? I have the wherewithal to do all of this because I have a company that was designed. Pat Lawler Design, technically, in a, in a material sense, I, I set the company up so that I have a, an entire model shop. I set the company up so that I have... CNC machines. I set the company up so that, you know, I have the ability to take and do, you know, small chunks of video if I want to. What I'm currently doing is I'm working on redemption games for kids. Uh, and, and sadly, redemption games for kids are now beyond pinball. You know, there are, there are vi- really fun video versions of things for kids that are redemption games, which are which are combination games for kids, which do the, the half-silvered mirror trick and stuff. Um, you know, uh, and so that, that's what I'm currently up to. Um, do I have the wherewithal to do that? Sure, I can do that. Uh, do I see anybody that would, that, you know, right now that would beat a path to my door that would want, you know, that would want that done? The answer is no. Can we talk about Family Guy at all? Uh, I can answer a couple of questions, maybe. Okay, it seems that you've had a very family-friendly attitude about pinball in, in general. I mean, you, you don't cross the PG line. Probably don't even cross the P, you know. Probably don't even approach PG, PG thirteen. When you did Family Guy and you saw what ultimately what it became, did this was this a concern of yours? We at Williams, the group there prided itself on doing product that you know that that was you know sometimes we double entendre you to death you know but we didn't un PG what we were doing because our goal was to attract the widest possible audience. In my in in my estimation, when you when you're trying to sell goods to the general public, what you're trying to do is you're trying to do the most to sell to the most people possible. And when you start to start to cross some lines 
you end up with a problem where there are people who will say, I won't, I won't operate that product, I won't use that product, I won't put that product in my basement. Um, and, um, and you run into a problem. And so I've always tried to cast the widest net possible. And, um, and so when I, when I, you know, when, when, when I see the, that line being crossed, I have a problem. And, and I guess, I guess it's easy for you to stare at me and say, oh, he's just an old, you know, an old fogey, a, a dummy. Uh, but I felt that way my whole life. I, I felt if you're going to sell something to people, you want to, you know, here's, here's the analogy. The analogy is real simple. Do I want to, do I want to sell 20 million of something in Walmart? Or do I want to sell ten of them in, um, you know, in a jewelry store somewhere? I want to sell twenty million of them, and so my feeling always was, don't cross the line. You know, you don't need to cross the line. In Family Guy's defense, since I got rid of the Adams family, it totally kicks butt at both my location and Marvin's. I mean, those I know those are only two locations, but it just kills all the other. I mean, kills the other games as far as money. It makes more than any other game in the pinball line by far, by twice what the other games. And and again, the other games are all recent model years. I think. I mean, I really think you should be congratulated with Family Guy and and what you did. Maybe it. Maybe it did. You know, I, I think you're coming from a from a standpoint that thinks that I, you know, completely dislike Family Guy. I. Uh, the, you know, mechanically what I did in the game, the whole thing with the, uh, with the mini play field, and, you know, and the, and the play field in general is a, is a, you know, is a, is a big leap. I had a, I had a wonderful experience meeting with the family guy people in Los Angeles and presenting them that whole Stewie mini play field thing. Um, you know, that I was sitting in a conference room with the people that make the show. And, uh, they, you know, basically they went, that, that thing's really cool. Um, you know, to be sitting in a room full of creative people and have them, you know, to, to have them, you know, see the smile on their face, hey, that's really clever, uh, means you, you did your homework that day. Um, and it, you know, uh, so I'm, I'm, you know, I, family guy's fine. I, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't have a big problem with that. It, it was just, uh, you know, we, uh, we, we had, you know, remember the, remember the two tribes that are standing there trying to sign at each other and understand what's going on? Yeah. That, that, that was a case of that. And so sometimes, you know, sometimes those things happen and, well, so what? Okay, we built a game, we move on. That whole game is just, to me, just amazes me. The software is great, but that, you know, like you said, the mini, the mini Stewie play field is unbelievable. Just the layout. I think it's a, you know, a, a big design change from what I'm used to seeing. You know, the Pat Lawler features are, are largely, you know, they're not utilized. The game feels really good. The shots feel good. The mini play field Stewie thing is unbelievable. I mean, I, I just think it's, I think it's the best game in the, you know, certainly of the Stern era, you know, from, you know, 1999 forward. Yeah, interestingly, um, in in the way I look at the game, uh, if you take remove the remove the the baby playfield for a second in your mind, the rest of the playfield 
that's on that game is a very simple, straightforward play field. And so part of the part of the attraction of what's going on there is there's there's one ramp on the game. You know, there's there's a, there's very straightforward things that you're doing there. There's there's not the normal attendant gobbledygook of 47 ramps and 37 things happening over you know here and um, you know it 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 really is a much more throwback kind of play field than you know than you know the, the the kind of stuff that we'd been building for a long time, and so I, I I purposely set out to do that. I purposely set out to make it a much more straightforward kind of play field. Yeah, I I mean if you took that design, if you took the whole game, and made it in 1992. I mean obviously you know Family Guy wasn't around in '92, so you know you'd have to call it something else. But if you made that game in 1992, I I, I think it. I think it it could have rivaled, you know, production numbers of Adam's Family and Twilight Zone. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just, you know, maybe they only made, I don't know how many Family Guys they made, but say they made, you know, two or three thousand of them. You know, it it doesn't seem like a huge, a huge run, but I mean, if it was just the right time and place, I think that that game just could have been, you know, a monster. Yeah. Part, you have to understand that in the the most modern sense, in the the you know in today, um, way more than in 1992, theme is is everything. Um, you know, people people decide instantly whether a theme is something they're going to be interested in or not. And uh, so, you know, when, when fan, you know, there were a lot of people, you know, who, who came out and said, I can't buy Family Guy. I can't, you know, more than you believe, more than you would think. You know, I can't, there's no way I can buy this game and put it in my rec room because my wife won't let me. Or there's no way I can buy this game and put it in certain, you know, kid-friendly locations because I'll be killed. Which is why, uh, you know, Shrek was was done on top of the platform. You know, it was a way to make the game more family-friendly and and you know recoup some of the investment that went into it. Um, which which should also you know it also speaks volumes to how. You know, the layout of a game is something less, you know, contributory in percentage to, uh, to to how people perceive the product than the theme. You know, as compared back in, you know, if you go back to, if you go back to, you know, the 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 the, the, the you know the the sort of high speed days and and that kind of thing, you were really into how does this game play? What are the shots? What do they do? Where do they go? And now the first question out of somebody's mouth is, what's the theme? <laughs> um, and they won't even give it a try if it's something that they're not terribly interested in. They'll just say flat out, I, I don't like that theme. I don't want to deal with that. And so it's, 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 it's a different world. Times change. In defense, though, of, of Family Guy versus Shrek, the production numbers on Shrek are, are in the hundreds. It was like... By the way, I had nothing to do with either one of those. They were both, both the themes, 
are you know were done by Gary Stern. Um, you know, I had I really had nothing to do with Shrek. Gary Gary to his you know to his you know he he should he should be congratulated for figuring out that what he could do was license the product to sell more product by doing the the uh, the Shrek thing. Um, you know that that's that's something that hadn't really been done. You know, since the '50s in Gottlieb games, um, where you you branded a game different things. Uh, we tried to do it at Williams with Jackpot, and we were killed by our distributors. We were told, "Don't give us that recooked game." Uh, and so, you know, you know, Gary's trying to do what Gary needs to do to try and stay alive. And you know, one of the things he needed to do was he tried rebranding the game. You know, I just say in the in the Shrek that I don't. Th- think it was all that terribly successful i mean just because he only made a few hundred of them compared to you know i i know he's made as you know a fair number of 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 family guys and people always ask me i you know there are shreks are out there they're available and it seems like people don't want them you know even though i understand what you're saying about the non-kid friendly family guy but you know it's like it's the same thing when we made it we made a video on repairing Bonsai Run and, and Adam's family and some stuff. And we had some really racy stuff in it. And a friend of mine said, you know, you need to make a G-rated version of that video. And I'm, you know, because we had some, some terribly racy stuff in that. And we did. And we sold, I think I could count on one hand how many of the G-rated version of that video we sold. And all the other pinheads, they all bought the racy thing, even though, you know, people strut and spit about how they don't want it. They really do want it. They just don't want us, they don't want their wife to hear them. Right. Yeah, I, I you know, the, there's, there's an argument for both sides of that. I'm glad that, you know, both Family Guy and the other guys have sold what they've sold so that, uh, Stern Pinball can stay in existence. Um, you know, the, the, you know, the, Gary really does believe in keeping pinball alive. And so, you know, he's, he's doing the best he can right now with the economic times that the country is going through to try and keep his company in one piece. And I congratulate him for that. I congratulate him for all the hard work he puts in to try and make that happen. That- the only problem I have with Gary, and, and it has nothing to do with anybody, is that I see what happened when he took it over from Sam Stern, his dad, in in the early 80s. And to me, what happened in that scenario is exactly what he's doing now. And, and, and you'd be crazy to think that if you did two things exactly the same, that you'd get a different outcome. And I'm just, I know it's different times, and there's a lot of, you know other variables involved but to me he's heading down you know to 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 tell you know to be given us an a, a ford explorer and then to backpedal and tell us that he can only sell a pinto you know i i just think that's uh, that's crazy i think he needs to do like what you were talking about you know something a little different every every bump in sales fingers in pinball has to do with some technological outcome you know something that was that that pushed the design, not doing the same thing or doing the same thing he did ten or twenty years ago. Right, and that you know that that's the point. You do have to understand, however, uh, part of what you said 
is that as production numbers go down, your suppliers charge you more for the parts. And what happens is you begin to have to raise the price of your candy bar because the ingredients cost more and more because you're selling less and less. And it's a, it's a vicious cycle. Um, and so, you know, the, they're doing the best they can at trying to, you know, at trying to keep things going and at least make enough money to keep it going. It's a, it's a vicious cycle. It's a hard place to be. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. You know, when you're selling to, to, to anybody who wouldn't know any better, when you buy 2,000 of, you know, a scoop for your pinball machine, they cost $60 each. When you buy 500 of your scoop for a pinball machine, they cost $150 each because the vendors charge you more for a smaller run. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a hard place to be because of how much in a pinball machine is unique. Was there any favorite toy that you designed in a machine that didn't end, you know, that didn't survive the end of game budget cuts, you know, that, that in, in, you know, that undoubtedly happens in, in any, any game? Um, you mean something that never got made? Yeah, something that you wanted that didn't get, you know, like you talked about, you know, the, the rooms in the, in, you know, in the back box on Adam's family or something, you know, probably something that was a little more, um, you know, it, closer to actually happening that, you know, your favorite toy that just didn't get made. Yeah, it, not really. I mean, there's a few things that we built along the way that I wish I would have, you know, I wish would have ended up on a game. You know, you've seen the prototype of Wizard Blocks, and you've seen the cool little rotating lights. Um, you know, I, I I really would still someday like to put those in a game. Um, they're just they're just so wow, blow you away, cool when you see them. You know, for the first time. Um, but not really. I mean, you know, the part of part of the engineering process is you know is throwing the sink you know at at you know at the wall and and you know and seeing what happens and sometimes all the stuff that you want to put in the game just won't fit or won't work or won't whatever you know it's it's better to have too many ideas than not enough ideas right and uh and so i you know that's part of the engineering process that's part of what you do with everything well Given that, was there ever a theme or, or, or license that you didn't get that you really wanted? Mm, not that I could put my finger on. You know, I, I, I used to have a joke. Ideas are free and cheap, and there's a million of them. But the hard part isn't, isn't the ideas. People always come up to me at, at, like, you know, Pinball Expo, and they'll say, I've got this great idea for a pinball machine. Uh, the, the problem isn't the ideas. The problem is building them. The problem is, you know, the problem is taking that I, you know, my, my great friend Larry DeMar has a favorite saying. He used to look at, you know, look at an idea for something and he'd go, you know, there's 99 bad outcomes in that idea, but there's one really good one. He said it's our job 
to find the one good one. And so, you know, the, the, uh, the, you know, the ideas are, ideas are easy and, and themes are easy. You know, I could take any one of 20 themes and turn it into a pinball machine. But, but, but the trick is, you know, how do you, how do you get one and pull it off so that you sell something? So that somebody who doesn't ordinarily, you know, play the game, find a, find a reason, find a cause to walk up and put money in that device. That's the trick. Um, and that's the hard part of the business. So, Pat, tell me about the little red button as it's seen on the, on the Funhouse Translite and, um, you know, and vaguely on the, on the Twilight Zone. Uh, it's a really nice button, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> it was originally drawn by John Yossi, and it was drawn for the Pat Waller Design logo uh, uh, by John. He did, the, he did my company logo. And uh, I, I just think it's a it's a nice it's a nice picture, uh, and I really I really enjoyed uh, I really enjoyed the talk with you. By the way, <laughs> okay. So there's no um, end world uh, nuclear disaster type overtures of doomsday type scenarios with the button. Uh, just it's it's personal meaning for me and other members of the game team, so we just leave it at that. Okay, fair enough. Hey, thank you, thank you, Pat, for explaining that at least vaguely. <laughs> you know, sure. And I appreciate you, you know, asking fair questions and you know all that good stuff. Well, good luck to you, and I, I, I do hope that I see another Pat Lawler pinball machine at some point in time. I mean, I, I'm sure I speak for everybody that says that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> that would that would be fun, but I think uh, I think we need to uh, I think we need to shake up what uh, what these games do first. Right. Uh, and so uh, who knows? Maybe we'll uh, we'll give it another shot here. Okay. Well, thank you again. I appreciate appreciate the talk. Yeah, and I and I appreciate your time greatly. Uh, thank you again. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye. This completes part three of our extended interview with Pat Lawler, the pinball game designer for Williams, Valley, and Stern. Topcast is a podcast covering pinball and the coin-operated amusement industry. It's available free of charge on iTunes and additionally available for download at pinrepair.com slash topcast. Topcast is produced by Clay Harrell. Production assistance by The Corn and Al Warner. This is Lawrence Brown reminding you that Topcast is copyrighted 2010 by pinrepair.com.